Good Sunday morning out there to all of you on, in live stream world. So good to see you again this morning. Glad that you've tuned in to Weird Week number four. Is it, uh, is it getting a little weird for you? A couple of my friends are naming things like churchual reality and... Uh, Another's calling this that we're in the Covidian exile. And I think they, these are good terms. But I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're not discouraged. I hope you're not fearful right now because rem- remember, God is in his holy temple, which means he's very present with us, and God is on his sovereign throne. So we know that he is watching over us and is in control of all things. But I got to be honest with you, that, you know, this is my sort of one outing a week out of house arrest. I get to get in the car and come over to the church, and this is my one thing, so it's a, it's a highlight for sure. But I've been thinking uh, uh, sort of along the emotional lines of the uh, sons of Korah in Psalm 42, when they, uh, when they write this, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. And then it goes down, these things I remember, verse 4, as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And we look so forward to that day when we get together again and assemble. So listen, don't get comfortable. This is, this is the way it is for now. We're in the Covidian exile. So for now, this is the way it is for us. And, uh, but, it, but it can't be for long. We, we've got to continue to long for the assembling of ourselves together. It's unnatural for us to be apart. We have to be together. So don't get complacent. Don't get comfortable on your chairs with your coffee in your, your, in your pajamas and, and uh, texting on your phone while this is going on. Don't get comfortable with that. We need to get back together. I pine for the assembly of us back together again. Well, listen, let's open in prayer together. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together in this format. Um, it's not ideal, and it's certainly not uh, the design for the church. We are to uh, gather ourselves together. We need to to be in contact with one another. But Father, for this, for right now, you've given this to us and we will rejoice and praise you in our circumstances. We understand that you can cause us to be content in, in whatever way we find ourselves. And so, so Lord, we will be and, and we will wait, but we will remember and long for the, the assembling and going together to the house of the Lord. So We look forward to that, God. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the lesson that we're going to have from the scriptures. Thank you for our time of worship already. And Lord, I pray as you've prepared our hearts, I pray that the word of God will sink deeply into our lives and and that we may acknowledge, Lord, your greatness and your incredible grace to us, your amazing love for us. Lord, today's study is a study in the incredible grace of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unthinkable, unimaginable, yet that's your love for us. And so, Lord, may we, may our hearts be built up to know how much you love us and care for us as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, all of these weeks, you know, we've been uh, studying the, the beautiful deeds of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the God-man. Uh, we've 
watched in the journey as he's healed the sick and as he's caused the blind to see and he's made the deaf to hear. He's fed the hungry and he's raised the dead to life. So now, what are we to make of people heartlessly nailing Jesus to a cross until he died? There's no possible earthly reason for Jesus to have faced an execution. There was no legal reason. There was no religious reason. There was certainly no moral reason. And unless this is the plan of Almighty God, it absolutely can't be reconciled in our minds. It's entirely illogical. And so I would submit to you that as I've thought through the crucifixion over all of these years of retelling the story, the crucifixion of Jesus is pure theology. There's no other explanation. This is entirely and only explained by conceding that the crucifixion of Jesus is God's eternal and only plan of salvation for humanity. Did you get that? The crucifixion of Jesus is God's eternal and only plan of salvation for humanity. The Son of God became incarnate for this very moment that we're going to look at again today and retell again today. In fact, John in his revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 13, 8, writes this, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. The plan of redemption is not some plan that was hastily thrown together on the basis of, of uh, uh, what man was up to, hot-headed people and, and a crowd that was uh, hard to control in Palestine. It was not put together because of some sort of tragic injustice in the annals of human failure. Listen to this. Uh, in, in fact, pay attention. Stop texting right now. Put the coffee down for a moment. Listen. God made a plan before he made you and me to make the free gift of salvation available and possible to us, to those who are impossibly separated from the living God, from our maker. That's for you and me. That's what this is all about. God made a plan before he made you and me to make the free gift of salvation possible for people who were impossibly separated from their maker. That's you and me. So, Today we're going to look again into the Gospel of Mark. And of all the Gospel writers, Mark provides the most stripped down and raw picture of the crucifixion. What it lacks though in detail, it makes up for in purpose. And it is this, to demonstrate that the crucifixion is fulfillment of Scripture. We're going to see that today. It's the plan of God. This is no accident. From the scriptures, the answer to the question of why Jesus died is given to us in bold uh, texts throughout all of the Bible. But interestingly, from Mark chapter 14, verse 1, uh, right through to chapter 15, verse 40, there are 16 words, phrases, or ideas that are directly taken from 25 verses in the Old Testament. Mark intends deliberately to show us that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 
is the one plan of salvation that God has for humanity. So why did Jesus die? The short answer and the full answer is because, Jesus, because God wanted him to die. So I want to look at uh, three angles, three major angles from the crucifixion as told by Mark. We're going to read it in a few moments uh, to help to explain the purpose of the crucifixion to us and its eternal implications for us. As one writer puts it, the crucifixion was not a failure. It was fulfillment of the destiny God assigned the Messiah. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and if you don't, please run and get it right away. I want to look at Mark 15, and I want to look at verse 16 right through to, um, to verse 41. Mark 15, verse 16 through to 41. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from, in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So! You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, He's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of God. The cross cuts in two directions, really. It lays bare the desperate bankruptcy of the human heart, while at the same time shines a light on the unimaginable mercy and grace of God. At the end of his earthly journey, Jesus is abused, he's alone, he's abandoned, he's betrayed, he's denied, he's unjustly treated. Human madness is put on display, provoked by unrestrained sin. Loved, man without divine restraint is unthinkably wicked. And the cross is intended on purpose to demonstrate that. The Old Testament scriptures stress the bankruptcy of the human heart. Psalm 140 verse 8, Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Mark brings this idea into the whole crucifixion details. When he states in Mark 14, 41, The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In Psalm 37, 32, the wicked, the explanation is given, the wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. This um, event, the event of the crucifixion, the details that we're looking at are surely about the eternal justification of the cross. History continues to repeat itself. In fact, in Genesis 6, verse 5, it states there, of course, this is the, just pre-Noah, pre, -Noah, pre the, the judgment of God, the flood on the, on the world. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The, the, this moment at Calvary, this moment of the crucifixion, this moment in Palestine is, is how mankind continues to cycle wickedness. And if something is not done about it, it will continue into oblivion. And so we see in the text here the first of our, of our angles that explain the purpose of the crucifixion. Jesus' abuse, the reason for Jesus' abuse is because of our sin. Yes, our sin, yours and mine. Jesus was abused because of our sin. That's who we are. That's what we are like. We are the epitome of the total evil of unrestrained human wickedness put on display. Unless God does something marvelous and miraculous with our lives. This is who we are. Now at that moment... When it talks about the soldiers leading Jesus away in verse 16. At that time the judge would have said something like this. The sentence 
is that this man should be taken to a cross. Jesus would have heard those words. And then he would have turned to the guard. And he would have said in Latin, E milis expedi crucum. Go, soldier, and prepare the cross. So in these next few verses, that's what's happening. The cross is now being prepared. And it says that it was in the praetorium. The praetorium is the residence of the governor. And it says there that the whole company of soldiers were called together. Now a whole company of soldiers would be 600. Now get a picture of this. You have 600 alpha male brutal soldiers ascending on the praetorium and Jesus there by himself being bullied and mocked and pushed around and intimidated by 600 rugged soldier men. He would already, of course, be in a weakened state because he had been scourged. Blood would have been pouring off of his back. He would have been, his back would have been throbbing in unimaginable pain while he's being mocked and while robes are, a purple robe is being put on him and a crown of thorns is being stuffed on his head and then the robe is ripped off of the coagulating blood on his back and opening up wounds again as they mock him and hit him and spit on him on our Savior Jesus was abused because of our sin, the intentional restraint of the God of creation is, is, is amazingly remarkable. This same Jesus is the one who created all of these soldiers. This is the same Lord, the, the creator, and now is being put on trial by the human cr cruelty of his very creation. The creature is abusing the creator. And by grace, he stands there and takes it. And they bow down to him, mocking him. Their view of their mind that is stranded on the things of this world. They, only, they look at him and see him as the alleged king of the Jews. And so they say, hell, king of the Jews. But there are others who later on once the veil was torn and they have a glimpse of eternity, would be calling him and knowing him as the king of kings in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. Regularly, life overestimates the goodness of humanity and regularly underestimates the greatness of God. And by the way, folks, this is just an appetizer of the mocking that was going to come. Many of these people following Jesus to the cross, passers-by who would be wagging their heads were the same people that Jesus had fed, breaking bread with his tender hands, providing for them, multiplying blessings to them and their little ones, the same hands that they would drive iron spikes through so that they could no longer perform acts of kindness. The level of sinfulness and wickedness in the human heart is unimaginable. At the cross, God felt 
the full hand blow of human cruelty and sinfulness. Dispelling any, any notion that humans deserve, humans are innocent and, des, and do not deserve the eternal judgment of God. Well, we find out, of course, in the scriptures as we continue on that, that God had pictured the crisis of the cross many times in, the, in, in, his, in his word. And now playing out in real time are the very phrases we find in the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 22 being an incredible messianic psalm, an incredible picture of the events of the crucifixion. And in that psalm, Psalm 22, 8, states there, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. In Matthew 27, 43, Matthew records, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. And in Mark, the mockers are calling out to Jesus in concert with Psalm 22. Come down from the cross and save yourself. We're going to look in this next section at why Jesus could not, would not come down from the cross. It gives us a picture of how serious our sin really is. You see, Jesus' payment in this second angle is this. Jesus' payment is our substitute. The cross is meant to be the cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus for us. Now, we need to know that for the Romans, crucifixion was... Nothing more than theater. It was to torture. In fact, the execution by the cross was a long and painful death. Many times people lasted for a week before they died. And the intention was to have a prolonged death. It was about theater. It was not only to torture, but it was to deter. It was a deterrent. In fact, uh, when they would require the person who was going to be crucified to march to the place of crucifixion, they would take the, the long road, the long, long road approach. The Via Della Rosa was a long journey through Jerusalem so that many onlookers would see what happens to someone who falls into disfavor with Rome. But Jesus, of course, was dying in our place for our sins. Because for God, this crucifixion was to make it possible for guilty, sinful people to escape God's judgment on sin. God was pouring out his wrath and judgment on sin upon Jesus. It's critical for us to understand this. God's lamb substitute on our behalf for our sinfulness was Jesus. Listen to how the Apostle Paul records it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing and powerful insight that verse gives to us. Jesus Christ became sin for us so that God could pour out his punishment and judgment on Jesus on our behalf, so that by believing in him, by trusting in him, we might receive the righteousness of Christ, covered by his blood. It's an incredible reality. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Capital punishment for sinning against God. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. God gave us Jesus, his son, to be his, our substitute. To be his lamb substitute for us. Perfect, sinless, without blemish, all of the picture of Passover, all of the sacrificial system to that point is culminating in this moment. And as we read along in the text, it says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, comes along. Simon, of course, was an African. Probably saved up his whole life to make this one journey to Jerusalem for Passover. Everybody wanted to make that one journey to be actually in Jerusalem at Passover. And as he's entering the city, he's conscripted by the Roman soldiers to take the cross of Jesus. It says in the text there that his name was Simon from uh, Cyrene. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Obviously, he was now known to the audience that would read this gospel decades later. No doubt Simon had become a, the, the early convert to, to Christianity. In fact, it's possible that, he, that this Simon is the Simeon, uh, uh, call, also called Niger, in Acts 13, verse 1, among the teachers and prophets in the early church. And his sons, Alexander and Rufus. It's, it's fascinating. Simon uh, ha, has... Uh, a Hebrew name, his son Alexander is a Greek name and his other son Rufus is a Latin name, giving us some sort of, ex some sort of span of the gospel. And this was no doubt an early church family, but here's the story. So Simon comes along and he, he's required to, to carry the cross that Jesus had begun to carry as he moved along toward uh, Calvary. And one writer states it this way, Jesus suffered so greatly that he couldn't carry his own cross so that he could enable us to carry ours. And so they move on, it says in the text, to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Golgotha, of course, in Latin is Calvary, which we know it as. It's the place of the skull. And there he is to be crucified. The Latin word, of course, excruciate, excruciatus, where we get our word excruciating, only describes what it is like to be on the cross. That's what that Latin word excruciation actually means. And there, it says in the text, they nailed him to the cross, and it was the third hour, or 9 a.m. in the morning. Then among the mockers, someone decided to offer him some myrrh, uh, 
mixed uh, wine mixed with myrrh. And it says in the text that Jesus refused to take this because it, was, uh, it would have a narcotic effect. And um, Jesus had already said to his disciples that he would not taste again of the fruit of the vine until he tasted it in the kingdom of his Father. And so he refused. In fact, he, he, he insisted upon remaining alert for you that he would take upon himself the full force of God's judgment. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath and refused to receive man's cup. And then and it says that um, they, uh, in the final humiliation of Jesus, they took off his garments. Garments, by the way, that symbolized his power and healing. And pe when people touched his garments, healing and power came to them. And they raffled off his clothes cheaply at the foot of the cross. It describes also that on his left and on his right were robbers. There he was in the center of sinners. I suspect that... Uh, being on Jesus' left and on his right was not as appealing and attractive to James and John at this moment. And as we continue to move through, those who walk by, it says, are hurling insults on him, verse 29, and shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from that cross and save yourself. Save yourself. Jesus looked defeated to them, and they taunt him and uh, invite him to remove himself from the cross. They, in fact, counsel Jesus to actually disobey the will of the Father, these religious leaders. The accusers seem vindicated at the time. Save yourself. It says in the text that we may see and believe. That we may see and believe. If Jesus had have removed himself from the cross, it would have been impossible for any of us ever to see or believe. In fact, those who are living in darkness at this moment cannot envision someone who refuses to save himself. But he can't save himself. Or he can't save others. And so he chooses to remain on the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. And then it says that uh, it became the sixth hour and at noon it became dark. The elements now are conspiring to allow people to experience the reality of what it is like and what their destiny will be like should they insist on withdrawing themselves from the Son of Righteousness. God's love for humanity holds Jesus to that old rugged cross for you and for me. It is now the sixth hour. And until the ninth hour, it says in the text, the whole land goes dark. Isaiah 53 gives us a picture of this moment, but he was, verse 5, or verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, our substitute. And by his wounds we are healed. Not of our physical diseases, of our spiritual death. This is the healing that has come to us. This is the core essence and context of this text, this scripture. By his wounds we are healed of our sin. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. And so we move to the uh, darkness, the dark moment of the cross. In our third angle this morning... In the psalm again, Psalm 22, the psalmist pictures in advance this event. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist writes. Why are you so far from me, from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Can anybody identify with that emotion even now? Perhaps where you are right now? Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there's no one to help. Jesus echoes this very same desperate prayer from the cross during this period of darkness. Eloi, Eloi, Lamassabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul writes confirms to us an understanding that that Jesus had become sin for us. Jesus is now experiencing the final of the human conditions. What it is like to be separate from his father because of sin. And in this moment of dire desperation, he cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is God? Where was God at this moment? Where is God when you're on your bed of affliction? Where is God in the dark night of your soul? Where is God? Has he disappeared forever? Surely you've cried this same cry to God. Because you know, uh, urgent prayer begins with a desperate cry. Where is God? Where is God when I need him? That's where prayer begins. When we can't see God... When we can't see that God is on our side. When we feel like God has gone silent. When we feel forsaken. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's increasingly your experience right now. Even as things have been, have been, uh, the the foundations of your world have been just being pulled out from underneath you. And and, and loved ones are sick or or whatever's happening to you right now. your, Your job is in peril or perhaps gone. And maybe you've already laid in your bed and cried out, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Loved, listen, Jesus' death is for our salvation and answers the question about God's presence. Jesus gave up his life so that those who trust in him 
can live. Now listen, listen to what happens here. This is so important, beloved. You need to hear this. You need to understand in your moment of grief and groaning and pain and a sense of abandonment and a sense of being forsaken, you need to understand what Jesus' death has purchased for you. Jesus is modeling lament for us. One-third of the Psalms are lament to God. You know, we sometimes ask the question, is it right for me to, to, to echo this cry of despair that Jesus echoed in the cross? Beloved, if Jesus called out this prayer, it's certainly right for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keep in mind that, that Jesus does the, the right thing. He cries out to God. This is not a... This is not an acknowledgement that God isn't there. This isn't an acknowledgement that God doesn't exist. This is quite the opposite. This is a, a, a thunderous acknowledgement by Jesus that God is there. My God, my God, do you see me? Do you see the weakness? Do you see the moment? Do you see how forsaken I am? Do you see how I feel? Do you see my affliction? Do you, do you understand and, and do you know my pain? It is fine to lament. It is the, the, the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament leaders are, 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 are filled with haggling with God and complaining to God. Listen to, to, to Moses in, in uh, Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5 and uh, verses, if you have a, ch a chance, Exodus 5 and verses 22 and, and on. Listen, listen to what Moses says. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, now listen, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon his people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Moses is taking God to task as, as a, as a, in relationship with the Father. Lord, I'm... I'm haggling with you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm in desperation before you. I'm complaining to you. In, in Joshua uh, chapter 7, listen to what Joshua says. And Joshua said, oh, sovereign Lord, why? Do you see the common word here? Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Why, God? Jesus, at that moment... In this cry of distress is incredulous that evil is getting the upper hand. But ever sensing the presence of God calling out to him in desperation. Many have said the only God that they could believe in or who, or who even makes sense is a God who firsthand has experienced the extremes of the human condition. And the pains inflicted on them by human wickedness. Our Savior experienced the full range of everything on your behalf. My God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? It's a true sign of relationship. Abused children will not run to the father who abuses them. When we call out in complaint and haggle and crying out to our Lord, it's because we trust in our Father and we know He can help us. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him, beloved. And then the crowd is still mocking Him, saying, let's see if Elijah will come. He's calling out. They, they, mistake, they mistake His call to God to be a call to Elijah. So spiritually insensitive are they. They say, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. They make sport of this whole moment. This man who's agonizing on a cross, an innocent man, a kind man, a gracious man, a healing man, a, a, a providing man, making sport of him as he dies. At that moment, he musters up superhuman strength. At the ebb of his life, it says, he lets out a loud cry and breathes his last. And in this loud cry, listen, here's what happened. It says the veil in the temple tore from the top to the bottom. The 80-foot curtain tore from the top to the bottom. That veil that separated mankind from the Holy of Holies, that veil that symbolically separated mankind from the very presence of God, the, that third chamber of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, which was the place that, that was um, a symbol of heaven, accessible only to God. At the moment that Jesus dies, the tear of the temple comes down. The Holy of Holies is opened up and humanity now has open access to what was formerly inaccessible to man. Into the very presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temple, the veil tears and God's presence is open to, it, to us. Powerful. And standing there witnessing all of this is a centurion, a high-ranking soldier. He sees this powerless death and hears this powerful cry. A, a man who has watched many men die. And this battle-hardened, high-ranking Roman centurion offers a Christian confession when he says, surely this man was the Son of God. It's the same confession that Peter made in Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, Jesus says, Upon that rock, upon this rock, the rock of that confession, I will build my church. And the first Gentile convert in the most unlikely situation, the most unlikely of individuals, is now putting his own life at risk and his rank at risk as he switches allegiances because the emperor of Rome was the son of God. This Roman centurion boldly confesses, surely this man is the Son of God. Fulfilling Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven, that says, All the families of the nations will bow down before him. 
Jesus had already prophesied, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' death was for our salvation, that the veil was torn, that access into the very throne room of God was made possible for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up his life so that those who trust in him can have life. Those who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, it says in the word of God, will be saved. Why all of this? Why did Jesus go through all of this? Why did God plan all of this? In a world of people, today as in every day, Bringing their own offerings to God. Only one offering is acceptable to him. God has brought his lamb, his sacrifice to us and for us. There is no other way to be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. There is no other message Jesus saves, and he alone saves. There's no other offering. This was God's lamb. There is no other. This is God's only plan. There is no other. There is no other hope for us. Our hope is in the Lord. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. God required a sacrifice for the capital offense of sinning against Almighty God. And the wages of sin, it says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The justice of God required a sacrifice. The mercy of God provided that sacrifice that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Oh, beloved, listen to me. Those of you listening in live stream land right now, there are multiple responses and to this, to this story, this great historic event of our salvation. There are some of you out there who insist upon rejecting this and you just don't care, you ignore it. There are others who reject and don't want it. There are many of you out there who are trying a different way to be right with God. This is God's only way to be right with God. This was planned before the creation of the world. This is God's plan for salvation. There are many of you out there who are believing this and are rejoicing in the retelling of this story and your joy in Christ. Rejoice! Your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, future. The veil is torn. Access into the very throne room of God is made for you, open, always, through Christ. Christ's death has provided you eternal life. Rejoice in this. But there might be someone out here this morning who is ready to believe. You've never really understood this, never really heard it. You've heard it, but you haven't understood it. But today, God has switched on all of the lights. He's fired up everything in your life. And you've come to realize this is truly God's plan. This is God's only plan. This is God's only way of salvation. This is the only thing that makes sense. 
that God would bring us his sacrifice. It's all of God, his grace. And today, today you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Well, here's how it's done. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, truly this is the Son of God, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it says in the Word of God, you shall be saved. Won't you do that this morning? Won't you respond to the message this morning? I encourage you to do that. In a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer. I just want to remind you, though, that we are going to have, or tell you, that we are going to have prayer rooms open for you, virtual prayer rooms. You're going to see instructions. There are going to be several instructions right after our service. If you desire to come to know Christ this morning, if you desire someone to pray with you, or if you desire just to be prayed with because you've got, you, you are right now crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever the reason, we have our pastors and wives ready on our virtual prayer rooms, and you're going to have to see instructions on how to get to those rooms, and we want to pray with you after the service. So please join us. If God is speaking to your heart this morning, please, I urge you, call us. Call in on our virtual prayer room. This is the day of salvation. Don't allow that sense to pass. Don't allow the pull of God to pass uh, from this moment if he's calling you. We're also going to give you, as, as always, a chance, to, an opportunity to, to, uh, to give uh, offerings. Uh, check out instructions on the slide with that. There's multiple ways to keep supporting the ministry here. Just want to remind you again of the Good Friday service that's coming up. It will be enjoying last year's uh, presentation, but a fresh message. That's at 10 o'clock on Friday. And our Easter service, services at 9 and 11. Again, uh, we'll be broadcasting uh, last year's services, but we'll have a fresh new message. So, so please take note of that. Let me pray in closing. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And Lord, in Jesus Christ, what you have done, how you have loved us. Jesus was abused because of our sins. We know, Father, that Jesus uh, went to the cross to be our substitute, to pay our penalty. And then Jesus died that we might live to be our Savior. Oh God, we thank you this morning. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for providing a way. And now, Lord, I pray that as this reaches the, into the very hearts that you've uh, planned for it to reach this very day, there are people, Lord, who need to respond and call out and ask you to save them right now. Lord, I pray for those this morning. And I pray that God's people rejoice and be lifted up and encouraged this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you all. So good to be with you. Be encouraged. God is in his holy temple among us. God is on the throne. Jesus died for us that we might have eternal life. And we rejoice in our life in Christ and hope evermore. God bless you.